evidence and answers. Divorce is one of the most painful experiences in anyone's life. However, most Christians are ill-equipped to minister to those who have gone through such an ordeal. What does God's Word say about divorce? How should the body of Christ respond to those hurting from this experience? Since this is a major issue in the culture and the church, it is important that Christians have a clear understanding on what the Bible teaches regarding divorce and remarriage. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat Zucaran presents a biblical exposition on divorce and remarriage. Pat is a national and international speaker, teacher, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Pat has been going through a series of studies on ethical issues, and today Pat discusses the topic of divorce and remarriage. Let's join Pat now on this important topic. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers where we present compelling evidence for faith in Christ and answer some of the toughest challenges facing the church and the culture today from a biblical Christian worldview perspective. And here we're addressing one of the toughest challenges facing the culture and the church today, and a very emotional one, the issue of divorce and remarriage. And let me review what we studied the other day, that Christians throughout the ages have held basically four particular views on divorce and remarriage. The first one is that there's never grounds for divorce and remarriage is never allowed. The second position is that there are one or two grounds for divorce, that would be adultery and abandonment, but remarriage is never allowed. The third view is that divorce is allowed for adultery and abandonment and that remarriage is allowed for the one who remained faithful to the covenant of marriage but was sinned against or abandoned by the other party. And the final position is that there are several biblical grounds for divorce, basically unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant, and remarriage is allowed for the one who remained faithful to the covenant and against their will they were divorced upon. And remarriage is allowed if reconciliation is not possible. So those are basically the four views. And I went into a brief biblical defense of each of the four positions. And as I stated, Good Christians and churches have held various positions, and it is the responsibility of each believer in Christ to study the Word of God and to see which view holds the most biblical support. I presented the four views last time and some of the biblical backing for these four particular positions. Today, I wanted to go into a little bit more of a deeper exposition on the biblical passages regarding divorce and remarriage. And as I stated, you may not agree with the position I come to. However, I do hope that this does indeed challenge you to deepen your study into the Word of God here. And whichever position you take, there are those in your churches who are divorced, those in your churches who have been remarried, those in your churches who have been divorced and feel that they are called by God to serve in your church. I hope that whatever position you hold, you come to a biblical position and treat those who have gone through this tough ordeal with grace, with love, but also coming from a biblical position here. And so my hope is not for you, you to be completely convinced with my position, but that you would study the position for yourself, study the biblical passages and come to a position and whatever position you come on, treat those who've gone through this tough time with grace, with compassion and with biblical truth. Well, those are the four positions. Let's look at them a little more carefully and look at the passages regarding divorce and remarriage. 
Now, the first position, no divorce and for any reason, and there's remarriage is not possible. On this position, lifetime marriage is the ideal. That's what God definitely wants. In the book of Malachi, God hates divorce, and throughout the scriptures, God does not want divorce. But God's ideal is not always possible in a fallen world. And when God's ideal is not possible, we must do the next best thing. For example, God allowed the Israelites to observe the Passover feasts on the second month instead of the first in Numbers chapter 9, when it was not possible. So there are times when the ideal is not possible, then we must do the next best thing. Also in the Old Testament, such as Deuteronomy chapter 24, God gave provision for divorce in the Old Testament law. So although it was not his ideal, it was the next best thing that he allowed in cases in which there was just grounds for divorce here. And God does not command remarriage, but that does not mean God never permits it. Now, having said that, we understand that God hates divorce. His intended design for marriage was that be a lifetime partnership between one man and one woman. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, God says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. It can't be clearer than that, that God hates divorce. However, the question is, is there ever a time that there is a just grounds for divorce? Now, I know this view may not be particularly held or agreed upon, but I'm going to have to say in this particular situation, yes, there are times when there are just grounds for divorce. In Jeremiah 3.8, God says this to Israel. She saw that for all her adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I, God, had sent her away with a decree of divorce. So here, God gives Israel her decree of divorce. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, God says this to the nation of Israel. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce, which I, the Lord, sent her away? So here, the Lord gives to Israel her certificate of divorce for her unfaithfulness. Now we understand that in the end, God redeems Israel and God fulfills his covenant to the nation of Israel. But here, in this particular situation, God makes this declaration to the nation of Israel. I hand you your certificate of divorce. For God to say that, and we know that God does not lie. God is perfect in his love and in his righteousness. Therefore, for God to say, I hand you your certificate of divorce, that means there are indeed just grounds then for divorce. And what are those just grounds that allowed God to say this in the Old Testament? Well, it was for the unfaithfulness to the covenant, Israel's unfaithfulness to the covenant she had made with the Lord. And on that ground, God says, I give you a certificate of divorce here. So although it's not the ideal I believe there are times when there are just grounds for divorce. For God to say this, and God being perfect in his righteousness, therefore, there are just grounds for divorce. So that is my particular position here. I, I believe it is supported by the biblical text. Although God hates divorce, there are just grounds for divorce here. I believe that is what the text is saying. So I believe there are cases in which there are just grounds for divorce. If one of the spouses is involved in behavior that endangers the other partner, 
if reconciliation is not possible, if the other person will not repent and turn from their sin, forcing the spouse back into that kind of dangerous situation, I believe at times can be quite cruel and against the spirit of what the Bible is teaching. Perhaps a divorce there will finally cause that person to wake up and turn from that sin and repent of their sin before the Lord and become the man or woman of God that God wants them to be. For example, and I understand everyone out there may not agree with the particular position I took, but there's a particular lady who was being abused by her husband physically. He put her in the hospital three times. The third time it was quite critical. And the reason she kept going back to him and that house is because people were saying, you cannot divorce, you must go back, you must go back. But each time she went back, he continued in his abuse. Finally, about the third time, it was pretty critical, her situation in the hospital. And she decided to separate from him, but he continued in his verbal and physical abuse. And at this particular position time, she came to the church for help. And she said she was filing for divorce. And on this particular occasion, because her life was in danger, we supported her on that as a last resort in hopes that he would turn from that dangerous behavior. And so, unfortunately, he did not repent. He refused to talk to counselors or seek counsel. And so we supported her throughout the entire process. And eventually that marriage came to an end, unfortunately. But that is a case where I think it would have been more cruel to keep sending her back. And though she tried and though she did separate from him and had a restraining order, he continued in his unrepentant, sinful, and dangerous behavior. On another occasion, there was a man who continued to molest his daughter. And it was quite serious. And so they separated and she put a restraining order on him. But he refused to repent and turn from his behavior. And she sought a divorce. And we supported her throughout this entire very painful process. But I think forcing her to go back into that situation, I think would have been going against the spirit of what the Bible teaches. And though he would not repent or turn or even acknowledge that sin, it was our hope that this divorce we felt she had just grounds would cause him to repent and turn from his sin, seek to be restored to the Lord, and seek reconciliation with his wife and children. But that was a last resort. And I believe when God said to Israel that I give you a certificate of divorce, God had just grounds for that. And so I believe that there are times in which there is just grounds for divorce. Now let's take a look at some important New Testament passages here when it comes to divorce and remarriage. Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus says, But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, some of your translations read, But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for adultery, causes her to become an adulteress. Now, the NIV translates it, except for marital unfaithfulness. Now, the Greek word there for unfaithfulness, or some of your translations read adultery, the Greek word there is porneia. Now, the word porneia has a much broader meaning than just adultery. It's much broader in its meaning, and it's not restricted to the physical sexual act of adultery. It's used 24 times in the New Testament. Several passages indicate that porneia refers to immorality or unfaithfulness to the covenant of marriage, not just the physical act of adultery. For example, Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, 
theft, false testimony, and slander. You see there, the word for adultery is moikia, and the word for sexual immorality is our word there found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, sexual immorality or porneia. So it has a broader meaning than just the physical act of adultery. It's a broad meaning of sexual immorality. That's where the word pornography comes from. It's that Greek word porneia. In Mark chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says this, From within, out of men's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, porneia, theft, murder, and adultery. So you see there, porneia, or sexual immorality, is distinguished from adultery, the Greek word there being porneia. And in Matthew 5, 32, when Jesus says, But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, the Greek word there is porneia, a general word for sexual immorality or unfaithfulness. In Acts 21, verse 25, Peter says, The Gentiles are told to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from strangled meat, and sexual immorality. Once again, porneia, having that broader general meaning of immorality, not just the physical act of adultery. And porneia is also used in a spiritual sense. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 2, it says, For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries or immorality. Once again, the Greek word there is porneia, and immorality is used here in a spiritual sense. The great prostitute here in Revelation chapter 19 is guilty of false teaching and enticing people to embrace her teachings. So the passages in the New Testament here, where we find the Greek word porneia, is translated unfaithfulness or immorality in a broad sense, not just the physical act of adultery. Now, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it, this is called the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word porneia is used over 50 times in there as well. For example, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Of my people, they consult in wooden idols and are answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. Israel is guilty of unfaithfulness to God there. And the Greek word, once again, is porneia. So here, unfaithfulness is not a physical act, but a violation of God's covenant with his people. So both in the Old and New Testament, he uses the word porneia in a general way to mean immorality or unfaithfulness. And many times it's used more than just a physical act. So to summarize, this Greek word porneia there, which Jesus uses in Matthew 5.32, except for marital unfaithfulness, it can refer to sexual immorality, and it can also be used to refer to unfaithfulness to the covenant which God has established. The analytical lexicon of the Greek New Testament, this is a fine lexicon to use in defining New Testament terms. When it comes to this word porneia, it says, it's used generally of every kind of extramarital, unlawful, or unnatural sexual act, fornication, sexual immorality, prostitution, and others, especially when it is distinguished from the word adultery, the Greek word moikia, in the same context. So it can have a general use for immorality, and metaphorically it is used of apostasy from God through adultery or spiritual immorality or unfaithfulness. When it comes to this passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, a very fine biblical scholar named Craig Keener, and I highly recommend his book on this topic, he states this, 
Matthew's point here in chapter 5, verse 32, seems to be that sexual sin within marriage need not be limited to a wife's having sex with another man. What if she habitually pursues the other man, but he refuses to return her affections? She may not be technically guilty of the act of adultery in a physical sense, but it is certainly sexual immorality in the broad sense. It is possible that persistent misconduct rather than a single act of adultery here is in view. So it appears that when a spouse is unfaithful to the marriage vows and continues in sinful behavior which is destructive to the marriage and the other partner and is unrepentant, they are guilty of unfaithfulness or immorality which Jesus seems to be speaking of here. Now Keener gives a few examples. For example, he cites from New Testament examples of the Jewish law. He cites the example of a wife going outside with her head uncovered as a sign that she is single and looking for another spouse. So though she is married, she's parading herself as a single woman here. That would be an act of immorality. So in our present day, if we brought that example in our present time, if a wife continually and in an unrepentant way refuses to wear her wedding ring for years and parades herself around the neighborhood as a single woman and openly is flirtatious with other men, even though she is repeatedly confronted by her husband and those in the church, I believe that would constitute the context in which Jesus is talking here of marital unfaithfulness or porneia. So immorality, porneia, in which Jesus is talking about here, I believe involves unfaithfulness to the marriage vows in unrepentant sinful behavior that is destructive to the marriage and to the other partner or children who are involved. So when a spouse is unfaithful and abandons her mate, this is an act of unfaithfulness. And I believe in this case, Jesus is allowing divorce. It's not the ideal. There's hope that the other person will repent, but if they do not, then I believe this constitutes just grounds for divorce. And the divorced upon or the one who is faithful to the marriage vows, I believe, is allowed to remarry in this particular case. Now, later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus again is asked about this question. And in chapter 19, verse 6, Jesus says that a husband and wife, they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, some say, therefore, divorce is never allowed in the New Testament. However, this does not mean that the marriage covenant cannot be dissolved. For in verse 8, just two verses over, Jesus says, that I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another commits adultery. So here, Jesus allows for divorce and remarriage. Now, some teach this passage allows for divorce, but not for remarriage. But if the divorce is valid, so is remarriage for the one who has been faithful to the marriage covenant and the other partner was unfaithful. Jesus calls a remarriage invalid if the divorce was invalid on unjust grounds. Now, early Jewish law allowed for remarriage when there was just grounds for divorce. And this exception clause to allow a person to remarry makes no sense if there was no remarriage allowed whatsoever. And the first century Jews understood remarriage was allowed in cases of valid and just grounds for divorce. Jews understood the Jewish law to teach that remarriage was allowed and Jesus states on what ground it is not allowed. 
and the ground is an invalid divorce. And the people ask in verse 10, his disciples say, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Well, what they're saying is they're responding to Jesus' teachings that you just cannot divorce just because you can't get along or divorce easily. There must be just grounds. Marriage, according to God's command, is for a lifetime. And Jesus says, you know, divorce is the last resort where there is sinful, dangerous, unrepentant behavior then as a last resort, divorce is allowed here. And so those are two important passages in which I believe Jesus is allowing just grounds for divorce on the grounds of unfaithfulness to the covenant of marriage. And it's more than just a sexual act of adultery, but it's unfaithfulness to the covenant of marriage where there's dangerous and destructive behavior to the marriage and one spouse is not repentant and unwilling to turn from their sin, then I believe there is just grounds for divorce here. That Greek word porneia is broader than just the physical act of adultery. It stands for unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant. Now in 1 Corinthians 7, here is another passage we must carefully look at. Paul in this context is talking about believing spouses who are married to unbelievers. And Paul is saying to remain in that marriage. Perhaps you will save your unbelieving spouse through your faithful service to Christ and being a faithful husband or wife. However, there are times, he says in verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. In this particular situation, though, when one spouse is abandoned by the other, then I believe Paul allows for remarriage. He says they are not bound. I think having to remain single when you are abandoned is a form of bondage. Once again, Calvin Keener, he's a good Bible scholar, and in his study of this passage, he writes, Paul grants an exception to Jesus' general principle against divorce and remarriage, and the exception allows that a believer might be divorced or deserted by a spouse against his or her will. These circumstances are not the believer's choice, and the believer is therefore not under bondage. He further writes, an innocent party, the one who was abandoned or unable to preserve the marriage against the spouse's will, will not be held responsible for the divorce or forbidden to remarry. For our churches to hold the innocent party, the one who was abandoned, responsible and forbid remarriage is to deny Paul's teaching and to oppress the broken. So I believe Paul allows the one who was abandoned here, the one who remained faithful but against their will, the other spouse chose to leave. They are allowed to remarry. I believe Jesus and Paul give just grounds for divorce, and they allow the one who remained faithful and tried to hang on to the marriage covenant. He allows them to remarry. I believe that was allowed in the Old Testament. And in the Jewish law, it was understood by the Jews that remarriage was allowed if there was just grounds for divorce. So I believe from what I'm seeing in the scriptures that God's intention for marriage is to be a lifelong commitment. However, in this fallen world, that's not always possible. The ideal is not always possible, and we must do the next best thing. And I believe that there are just grounds for divorce, and where there are just grounds, the innocent party or the one who is faithful to the marriage covenant and against their will they were divorced upon, I believe that party has a chance to remarry. The spouse who instigated the divorce, I believe their first calling is to repent of their sin and to reconcile. 
if this party does not attempt or try to reconcile and repent of their sin, if they remarry, I believe Jesus says they are committing adultery. If they don't try to reconcile with their spouse, whom they unjustly divorced. And I believe that's the spirit of what the Old and the New Testament is teaching. Now, I understand there's several different positions here, and you may not agree with my particular position, and that's okay. So I encourage you to study the scriptures and see which position has the strongest biblical support. I believe that what I gave was good exposition of the teachings of the Old Testament and the teachings of Christ and the apostles. But I encourage every believer in Christ out there to study the scriptures that I went over today and others and to come to a position yourself. And as we deal with this issue, we'll deal with it from a biblical position, but also one tempered by grace and compassion for those who have gone through this very difficult ordeal. God bless you as you continue to study His Word, and we look forward to seeing you next time here on Evidence and Answers. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers. If you missed any part of this show or would like to hear the entire series on this issue, log on at evidenceandanswers.org. This show relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join us next time as we continue our series on ethics right here on Evidence and Answers.